my name is Scott, and I'll be reading the Bible verse this morning from Esther chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done, when under his care. Mordecai saves the king. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. After, the, after these events, kings Ahasuerus promoted Haman and the son of Hamaditha and the Adjagite and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was written when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai, Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which was the month Nisan in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, her, that is the lot, was a castle for Haman, from day to day and from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar, when Haman said to king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that he be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the king's hands of those who carry on the king's business. It's put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children. In one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be is issued as a law in every province was published to all the people so they should be ready for this day. The curious went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa 
was in confusion. Hi everyone, welcome to week two in the book of Esther. I'm really glad you're with us today as we open up and look at this epic narrative once more uh, from chapter 2 at 19 all the way through to the end of chapter 3. There's an outline in the notes section, so please make use of it. So let's just jump straight in today. So we meet Mordecai sitting by the gate to the city in verses 19 and 21, but he's not having a lunch break. The entranceway to ancient cities, their gates, they were cultural hubs where business was transacted, legal civil duties were performed. Think of North Terrace or Rundle Mall or something like that for today. Archaeological excavations from Susa, where he was sitting, revealed the gate where Mordecai sat was about 40 metres by 30 metres. It was huge. It was a little shorter than a soccer pitch today. This was a big gate. More than that, to sit down here was to have a place of influence. Essentially, Mordecai held an influential political position in the royal court of Persia, just like Daniel did, just like Joseph in other biblical stories. Often we find God's people in these positions. And on this particular day, Mordecai sitting there listening to the chatter, the events as he normally would, he uncovers a devious plot. In what reads more like a Netflix script, he hears two people planning an assassination of the king. He realizes that something must be done. So he passes the news on to Esther, who's the queen, who then tells the king, letting him know, Mordecai told me this. He found it out. King, will you do something? A swift investigation soon reveals it was indeed true in verse 23. And the two behind this plot are then impaled on poles. Now, that's a normal way of doing things in Persia, by the way. It's probably the beginning of crucifixion the Romans picked up from them and perfected many years later. Now, what this little event has done for us, the reader, is to set up for us that Mordecai and Esther are now both in the king's field of vision, you see. Both have risen in the Persian courts, not through deception or devious behavior, Not even through chance, not even just because they're in the right place. No, God's handiwork in placing them in their jobs, in their positions, has led them to this point. Even in the real decisions they make and respond to, we've seen and we're going to see more and more, God is sovereign over it all. Just think about this. Esther and Mordecai, there's a classic story of rags to riches, the little guy coming out on top that captures the Australian heart and mind, does it not? You know, it's in our cultural DNA to celebrate this. Um, I think of the movie called The Castle. It's an old movie for sure, but it demonstrates the little guy facing the big multinational and winning so he can have his home, he can have his castle. That's a bit like that with the Esther and Mordecai tale. The question before us now is what's going to happen next? How is Mordecai going to be rewarded? What will Esther do as the queen? And frankly, it's actually a little bit depressing We read there's no reward for Mordecai. The closest he gets is the king wrote it down in his book, which is very wonderful. But we know that acts of loyalty from Persian kings were awarded immediately and very generously. And more so, this was Esther's cousin of all people. Surely he would be credited with something for saving a king. You know, he would get something right. But do you know what? Even when we aren't rewarded the way we expect or like or others gain influence and friends have status and we've been working all those years in a job with little recognition, God is at work and, and we see that here. And so this very brief yet important series of events has helped set up what is going to come next. 
and what will ultimately be the outcome of the book where Esther and Mordecai don't just save the king, but all Jewish people from destruction. It's another great reversal in the tale of Esther that we see. So that's scene one. Scene two now comes on. It begins in chapter three. It says, after these events in the beginning. So after these events with Mordecai, uh, he unknowingly now makes an enemy that now puts his life and the life of the entire Jewish population in danger, all because he refuses to honor this guy. This is scene three. This is making enemies. This is getting serious. And so at the very start, we're introduced to a new character in the story called Haman. And the first thing we learn is that the king elevates Haman to a position above all the other nobles at the gate. This guy is now top dog, best friends with the king. He can go anywhere. He can do anything. He has the, the king's ear and influence. And right away, Haman is wonderfully contrasted to Mordecai. Haman was elevated. We don't know why. Mordecai saved the king's life. He was not. Not only that, but we learn that Haman is an Agite. Now, that's an important fact that explains why Mordecai doesn't kneel down or pay him honor and respect in verse 2. Now, just consider, Jewish people happily bowed in respect to people in authority. Mordecai doesn't have an anti-establishment lean in him. He just saved the king's life after all. Um, This is a little bit more personal. This touches deep on his ethnicity, his nationality, on a past dispute that two nations had. National loyalties run deep in people. And often it comes out in conflict in some of the most uh, strange ways as well. Now, Now just consider that Australia, we have a huge mixture of cultures. In the 2016 census... More than 200 countries and 300 ethnic ancestries were recorded. However, in the same year, we realized it's not all smooth sailing. The University of Western Sydney did a survey revealing 50% of Australians think all other nationalities should assimilate into our culture, giving up their own heritage and identity. And 32% of those have negative feelings towards the Muslim community. You know, tensions over nationalities, ethnicities, they're still alive, even in Australia, even in 2020. So this is not a new thing that we're finding in the tale of Esther and Mordecai. But now for the original readers, what this has done, the introduction of Haman, the Agite, remember the first first way and time a character is introduced and what we learn about them is important for the story. As an Agite, he's from the Amalekites, and that means there's rivalry. Why? Many years earlier, right after leaving Egypt, we see the Agites provoking the Amalekites, provoking, fighting the Jewish people, Israel, God's people, as he saved them. As they're wandering in the desert, they came up the back, they started to slaughter men, women, and children. And the tension between those nations then began. In fact, in Exodus 17, God even promised that those nations are going to be at war with each other always. And even after all those years, When two people from different nationalities meet in a foreign king's court, tension is palpable. It adds another layer of complexity to the story. You know, given the history of God's God's, uh, anger at his covenant people, given the fact that they're in in exile because they rebelled and walked away from God's covenant, given that Amalekites uh, had always been fighting God's people too, the question before us now is, is God still going to be faithful? Is he going to preserve his people when they have been unfaithful to him? So let's 
have a look and see. Well, the other officials, they noticed this. Day after day, they asked Mordecai, dude, why aren't you bowing down and respecting Haman the way that you should? As time goes on, the officials know something up. And you know what they do? They provoke the situation. They get, the, they get the, the feeling that something's up, so they want to bait one another. And they bait Haman, and they say, Haman, dude, Mordecai's a Jew. And that trick works. Not only is Haman filled with rage because Mordecai isn't bowing down to him in verse 5, Haman decides, I'm so upset with you, I'm actually just going to wipe out and commit genocide against the whole Jewish population because I don't like this Haman guy. And that's huge, that's extreme. But then five years pass from that moment. And in verse 7, Haman's anger has grown and grown every single day. And so what he does is he turns to an ancient dice called the Pur in Hebrew. And Haman goes to this dice, he rolls it to find out what direction from the gods as to what he should do in this situation. And when the numbers are all added up, it's revealed that in 11 months time, he is able to now fulfill his evil desire against these people. Now, this is really interesting too. Into the story of Esther now comes this idea of destiny, of chance, of the roll of the dice. The question is, if God is really sovereign over putting Mordecai and Esther, his covenant people, in these places of influence, if he is sovereign over the king's drinking and self-promotion and self-glory, if he's sovereign over putting Haman the Agite in this situation, is God sovereign over something as random as the roll of a dice? We'll find out. So Haman trots off to the king with this news and he carefully weaves a well-scripted message about his intentions. Now, in a credit where credit is due, Haman is a gift of persuader. He's got a silver tongue and today I'm sure he would have his own motivational quote Instagram page. Then he speaks to the king, but notice how he says this. He, he says, he weaves a perfect narrative for the king. He says, a certain people, he doesn't call them Jews, he says, a certain people, these certain people, king, they've permeated all parts of the Persian Empire, subtly making it out to be a systemic problem because they're everywhere. And he says they're different, and showing that there's a separation. If they're different, they're bad. And finally, it wouldn't be in the king's best interests to tolerate them anymore. You need to annihilate them, king. He set up a compelling narrative that lures the king in. And to sweeten the deal, just to finish it off, king... 375 tons of silver out my pocket coming to you. Now, we know in, in history that a, a recent war that the Persian Empire had entered into had, had pretty much emptied the bank account. So if nothing else, that would have been a sweet deal for the king to latch onto, I'm sure. And so Haman's silver tongue and his silver coins purchased the death sentence of the Jewish people. And like Judas, who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and so sealed his fate, Haman thinks he's doing the same here. And pretty soon a decree is written down. It's made law in verses 12 and 14. Now this is horrific. It's a full-scale government-approved genocide of old and young, women, children, everyone. But it gets even worse. Just look at the very last verse here. In verse 15, the king and Haman, they sit down to drink and celebrate a job well done. Order genocide, sit down with a beer, congratulate yourself for a good hard day's work. That's what's happening. But that 
is in contrast, you see, to all the people of the city. The city, we read, is bewildered and it's shocked. This flurry of activity as the couriers have gone out has hit the people at this news of looming genocide. And just think, this has all happened from the decision that Mordecai made to save the king's life, which then leads to the promotion of Haman, who Mordecai would not bow down to, which then leads to the, a law being twisted towards the total destruction of the Jewish people. And now everyone is grieving this. Moreover, I bet Faster and Mordecai at this very moment, God's providence and sovereignty is looking about as clear as mud right now, isn't it? John Calvin many years later, once said that the the order, the reason, the end, the necessity of those things which happen, for the most part, lie hidden in God's purpose. And that even when free will moves itself, says Thomas Aquinas, this does not exclude it being moved by another from whom it receives the very power to move itself. In all of this, the authority, the authority, the author, sorry, of Esther has shown us the same sovereign God, all the hallmarks of his handiwork are still present here, even when the temperature is rising quite considerably. You see, God is not just sovereign in putting people in a position of authority and rags to riches kind of way like chapter one, but even sovereign when life takes a turn that we don't like or we cannot understand. God remains sovereign. He is sovereign over the job that Mordecai had at the gate and the rewards that Mordecai did not get when he saved the king's life. God is working even when Mordecai does not honor Haman and even when the dice rolls, God is determining the very outcome of that. Now I say all that because when you read this part of Esther, when you think about COVID and and the safety of your family and your job security or the lack of job, or we can often say in those times, as Jeff Robinson said this week, I read in an article, he said, now we say now is not the time to get all theological. And all that's going on, we don't need that. But But he goes on to say that nothing could be further from the truth. It's moments like these that we need the deep realities about God to sustain us. And if you're here online with us today, if you reflect on where you've arrived at life with the news of cancer or the the job loss or the, the pressure being at home, unsure about the future, worried by the virus potentially getting worse if we're going to ease some of the restrictions, if you find yourself in those cities very much bewildered like the city in verse 15, feeling hard done by watching others even succeed while you suffer, just just being swept along in some grand drama that you have little control over, like Esther is here, if you're more nervous and anxious, as I have been from time to time the last few weeks, feeling guilty of perhaps having a job in today's climate. (coughs) Perhaps it's time to anchor yourself in some simple yet marvellous truths about our great sovereign God. And there are two areas I think this chapter of Esther encourages us to reflect on God's sovereignty in our lives over. The first one I think is God is sovereign over our plans and our rewards. And secondly, I want us to explore how God is sovereign over death. So firstly, pardon me, God is sovereign over plans and rewards. 
You know, a, a casualty of our global pandemic is that our best laid plans that we've spent years in the business world making or mapping up big plans and visions, our holidays, our work trips, speaking engagements, family gatherings, you know, weddings, celebrations, all those wonderful things, all, all the plans, the best laid ones we can put together have all grinded to a halt. As I did a few weeks back, I, I opened up my diary as the restrictions started to come in and I just went through and hit delete, 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 day after day, week after week, because all the stuff that I planned suddenly changed. It was in the air. There's a new way of doing things. It's a gone out the window. You know, it's a little like Mordecai and Esther. They're thrust into a situation they did not choose with an outcome they did not expect. Even when Mordecai and Esther do something good, you know, like tell the king of a death plot against him. It opens the door for Haman to come in and the death plans a death uh, warrant against the whole of their people group. You know, they really have so little control, just like we do in this season. And so how's the, how are the deep realities going to sustain us at this time? Well, the first thing is the Christian God is never just a player among others. The rolling of the dice in Esther is to remind us that the dice has no more power or authority than God. When others are plotting and decreeing, sitting, drinking, suffering, bewilderment of what's happening, these evil powers, they never have the last word, even in the rewards of this life. You know, fair go for Mordecai is what we'd say. You know, you reward the king, foil a plot against his life, and you get nothing. And for an achievement-driven society like we are in, we don't like to not be rewarded. After all, we want people to be treated for what they do. But this forgottenness, it resonates with us so much, as often as much as God's absence in the book of Esther too, God's forgottenness and God's absence in Esther. Many of us can relate, I'm sure, to moments when it feels like God has forgotten us and people don't even notice us for all the hard work that we do. You know, you go to work and your your boss, your team can't remember your name. You go online and people don't know who you are. You go to the, the fish and chip shop or get an order. No one knows who you are. Your, your teachers can't remember your names. Your lecturers can't remember your names. No one knows who you are. But But there is a God who does know you. I'm thinking too of the, the hardworking mum who, 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 who does a, who works as well, perhaps, and, and, and it's so thankless, isn't it? Day after day, the feelings of guilt that often overshadow you when you wake up in the morning and look, thinking of managing your children and, and then work and how am I going to balance that? Or anyone that's been in a job for years and years and years and has suddenly lost it now with nothing to show. You've got no severance package, not even a piece of paper saying thank you. One morning you go to work and you're gone. It's frustrating, is it not? When our best laid plans are overturned, when our jobs are changing, when the hard work goes unnoticed. What Esther is reminding us here is that there is someone who does see, who does value you, who is at work, not because of what you can contribute to the world or society or your family, but whose purposes and plans are still at work in all of your mundane, who flips suffering on its head so that we can see suffering is not the end. It's it's purposeful in the Christian story. It's refining. It's It comes from one who encourages us to look at the story of Esther and our life, consider that he is at work. Even if you were to spend your entire existence in thankless nothing, as your value and worth can rest outside of creation on the uncreated sovereign God of it all. All your plans, all your rewards are lack of. God is sovereign over them. 
Will you see that your hope is not just that it will somehow get better, left up to chance or, or some uh, random thought? But you know, when when the, when Jesus went to the cross, the great justice of God was being done as He suffered unjustly. All our reward for a life of sin, the death that we deserve, Jesus suffered through all of that. He worked for you and me something that we could never accomplish on our own so that we could receive his saving, sustaining grace to navigate life in all the unjust and frustrating ways and places that we find ourselves in. And that hope from Jesus stretches into all of eternity with the resounding echo that the best is yet to come, that we have a good king and that what he has begun in you and me right now, listen, he is faithful to complete. God is faithful to complete what he has begun. He will see you cross the line into glory. My question for you, it's on your handout, chat with an open morning tea perhaps, is this, how does God's sovereignty, as we've seen from this chapter in Esther, how does God's sovereignty over your rewards, over your work, the, the, the changes um, that you're facing in life, over all these things, how does that change the way that you approach everything you face in life, knowing that God is sovereign? Does it change anything? How does it? And then this brings us to the last point, last few moments, four minutes. God is sovereign over death. You know, the way this chapter ends could easily be translated to our own time with COVID. In our cities, in our homes, people are bewildered what to do, how to face their mortality when it seems like death is so close to us. You know, being aware under the sentence of death is not a new place to be in. Now, it is for the West in some sense. We, we in the West, in Australia, we make death very neat and tidy. We segregate it from our lives. We shut it off in special buildings. We don't think about it in our work days. We feel fragile and afraid and scared. When it happens, we just don't know what to do about death. And something comes along like we're finding now. It's big, like the, like for Esther's time, the threat of genocide or a pandemic. And we can't escape its present. Death is still there. And I mean, you could be thinking at this point, or maybe you thought earlier on, <clears throat> Mordecai, why didn't you just bow down, you know, you didn't have to mean it. You bow down, pay Haman his respect, and you would have saved us all from this terrible mess. Or, or how unjust for a king to agree to execute these people when he did not even ask who they were. Or maybe you want to blame someone today too for where we are. It's the person in China who ate the bat. It's the millennials who don't take social distancing seriously. It's the government for not shutting it down soon enough. It's Trump for telling us to inject bleach into our skin. Now, we're all facing this looming sickness and death, potentially, an economic crash, a shortage of basic needs, and we feel bewildered, do we not, in the city at what's happening, too? And the question is, is there any hope as we face death? And while Esther's situation and her people find themselves in is very different from a pandemic, humanity has always been under a cloud of death, which we can never deliver ourselves from. Ever since the Garden of Eden, sin, or after the Garden of Eden, sin has been at our doors, death looming as a consequence for our rebellion from God's loving rule and care. But you see, it's always been that God has, God alone saves his people and that he has chosen to do that at a great cost, more than 375 tons of silver cost. While Haman used his money to purchase death, God used Christ's death to purchase our life and hope in the face of death. No greater price has been paid for liberation. That price has been paid in full at the cross of 
Jesus. You know, the wonderful truth of the gospel is that the stability of our relationship with God does not rest upon what we do or how we feel or what's happening around us, but on what has been done in the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gently walks through death and will lead us through to the other side. The Christian hope is not just here and now. It stretches in the face of a pandemic, through the other side of the economic downturn, through the other side of financial stress, pointing us to a true king and a true hope that we have that will last for eternity. You know, in Psalm 16 verse 5, we find the same word for lot that was used when Haman rolled the dice. David picks up on it, the author of Psalm 16. He says, Lord, you make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a delightful inheritance. Now, David looked at his life, and instead of trusting a dice or chance, he knew his life, his destiny was not up to to chance. It was secure in his God. My final question for you is this. In, in, In what ways... Could you take comfort this week and share with others too, knowing that your life and your destiny are not up to chance, but they're secure in Jesus Christ, even through a pandemic? Because what God has begun in you, he is faithful to complete. Death has been arrested. Your future has been changed because Jesus, and he supplies grace upon grace every day to navigate the ups and the downs. When we don't know how to feel, when all else is in the air, he is a solid rock to stand on. All other ground is sinking sand. And so may the deep realities of God continue to sustain you this week. And so we leave Esther with the threat of death. And we leave ourselves now at Trinity Church Golden Grove with the threat of death. But with the hope that rests in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross to forgive us and give us life with him purchased by his blood. If you don't know who that Jesus is... Uh, click on the connect card, make a comment in the chat section. Uh, we love to get to know you, to hear your story, to see how Jesus um, had died for you and how you can be a part of his kingdom too. I hope you have a wonderful week. How can you take and rest in the grace of Jesus this week? <music>